On this podcast, we explore fantastical thinking, moral panics, conspiracy theories, and urban legends, examine the forces that shape our culture, and tell the stories that create the realities we share, and sometimes the realities we don't. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. And all of Florida means life and youth and fun. A land of joyous days and alluring nights. Is there anything that calls out to the true tacky soul of America quite like a photo op of an elephant acting as a golf caddy for the President of the United States? According to the imprint that one elephant left on Miami Beach and the nation at large, potentially not. Oh, how we Americans so dearly love a gimmick, myself very much included. And these spectacles have always been potent tools to get our attention and then our cash. In our last episode, we discussed the meme Florida Man that makes viral the most ridiculous crime headlines and mugshots out of the state. A social media phenomenon that's been keeping us entertained since 2013. But what we haven't explored yet is another brand of Florida Man, the huckster, the charlatan, the kind of Florida man that created the unreal allure of the Sunshine State as we know it today. During the Florida land boom of the mid-1920s, Americans poured into what was then called the last American frontier for what would become the 20th century's gold rush. Florida real estate was essentially high-stakes beanie babies, Pokemon cards, cryptocurrency, a fantasy of potential wealth too potent, too hopeful to let go of until it was too late. To get a sense of how this massive chaotic craze was whipped up by eccentric American business moguls lacking in any real moral code, we'll follow the antics of one such eccentric, a true master of the gimmick, of the super spectacle, a man chocked full of that reckless cannonball confidence that powers not only the Florida men of our memes, but also our country's most confounding confidence men. Carl Fisher, whose life story is skillfully laid out in Bubble in the Sun, the Florida boom of the 1920s and how it brought on the Great Depression by Christopher Knowlton, was born in 1874 in Greensburg, Indiana, with bad eyesight and a wayward father, both of which led him to leaving school at 12 to support his family. During his teenage years, Carl took any job he could get, working in bookshops, selling tobacco, and peddling newspapers to passengers at the Indianapolis train station. 
already known by his friends and family to be unconventionally crude, generally sleazy, and all-around pretty gross, he was said to chew and swallow the butt of his cigar after he finished it. In line with his charming personality, he came up with his first gimmick while selling convenience items at a railway stop. He would size up his potential buyer to see if he was a good fit before quickly flipping up his apron flap to display an image of a naked woman. This early form of subliminal messaging seemed to work and his sales rapidly increased. It was then that young Carl knew what he was meant to do on this earth, sell people shit creatively to become an advertising artist. You see, Carl had long been a gimmick kind of guy, already a tightrope walker, a headstand extraordinaire, even able to walk on stilts a mythical story high, and apparently able to beat his classmates in a foot race while he was running backwards. Carl Fisher showed a need for speed early on, becoming an obsessive bicycle racer, a card-carrying member of the Indianapolis Zigzag Cycling Club. Soon, the young entrepreneur opened a bicycle repair shop with his brother, and to promote his first grown-up business venture, Carl created ambitious publicity stunts that only an unencumbered teenage mind could conjure up. He rode around town on gigantic novelty bicycles measuring 20 feet high and rode a bicycle across a tightrope stretched across a busy street. In his most Willy Wonka-esque stunt, he released a thousand helium balloons into the sky, a hundred of them containing a special ticket that if returned to the shop, could be redeemed for a brand new bicycle. In the most unhinged of his bicycle shop gimmicks, he informed the press that he would be throwing a bike off the tallest building in the city to prove how tough this particular model truly was. Whoever returned the bike to the shop would be gifted a brand new one of the same model. Apparently, the cops couldn't get to the building in time. They were too late. And the stunt went forward with no injuries reported. Travel this year the roads to romance, to places you have always wanted to go. And when you travel, go in one of the quality motor cars. It will be your magic carpet that will carry you to the land of your heart's desire. As automobiles became the new craze at the beginning of the 20th century, Carl went all in on this new innovation, completely converting his successful bicycle shop into a car shop specializing in both sales and repairs. His gimmicks only grew in ambition, the first of these a reimagining of an old trick. He dropped an entire seven-seater car off the roof of an Indianapolis building and then started the car and drove it off, leaving a cheering crowd amazed by the automobile's durability. In a far grander stunt, 
Carl actually unfastened the basket of a hot air balloon and attached a Stoddard David automobile in its place after removing its heavy engine. He actually sat in the driver's side and invited his buddy, the well-known balloonist George Bumbau, to ride along with him, and together they flew high above the streets of the city, waving to the gathering crowds below. But Carl wasn't done yet. After a couple hours, he drove into the middle of town, the balloon revealed to the crowd as neatly folded inside the trunk. But the Stoddard David he arrived in was not a magically weightless vehicle, but a second car with engine intact that had been parked at the landing location. Nonetheless, the spectacle duped the local newspapers into reporting it in the magical way that Carl had wanted. The stunt would also catch the attention of his future 15-year-old wife one of the spectators who looked up at the 35-year-old salesman floating over the city. Surprise! Jane soon found out that this dazzling businessman, Carl Fisher, sucked. As she recalls in her memoir, when they went on their honeymoon by custom-built yacht down the Mississippi and into New Orleans, he left her as soon as they arrived to cruise brothels with his buddies. And soon after that, he started an affair with his secretary. When poor Jane confronted Carl with these grievances, he simply said, quote, Why, you little wench, I love you. I wouldn't trade you for two skunks. Continuing his passion for all things speedy, in 1909, Carl, along with several business colleagues, invested in the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Because the road had not been properly paved by opening day, the very first car race held in the summer was like the opening scene in Final Destination 4. There were multiple serious crashes, a bunch of shit caught on fire, numerous drivers and audience members were maimed or killed. But did this give Carl Fisher even a moment's pause? Oh, hell no, he ain't quitting. He just got some other investors to cough up $3 million to fix the track. And in 1911, 80,000 people would take this second ride on the figurative Titanic, which luckily did not end in bloody pandemonium and instead ended in a yearly event known as the Indianapolis 500. The businessman, already decently rich, would become fantastically rich when he helped create Presto Light, a bike light company he sold in 1911, raking in $5.6 million, which would be $141 million in today's money. Always the eternal car boy, Carl's next gig was to join the Lincoln Highway Association to get past one of the earliest highway projects, an interstate spanning from New York to San Francisco. He first donated a handsome sum of money and then went about whining and dining his fellow millionaires 
Thomas Edison, former President Teddy Roosevelt, and even then-President Woodrow Wilson, all of whom bought in. These highway plans were going through because in the last years of the 1910s, America was in the midst of a booming post-World War I economy, which gave citizens the disposable income needed to produce the Roaring Twenties, including major changes in the work lifestyle, pensions, and paid vacations. It was the first time that typical middle-class Americans could take a vacation. It was also the first time that the common man had access to the gas-powered horse and buggy, the wondrous but sputtering automobile. But Carl Fisher, he was a fast-moving man, and he was already bored of the whole highway project when he dipped out of the Midwest and found himself standing on the edge of the North Atlantic Sea in the hot air of an undeveloped swampland that somehow made the optimistic Carl see dollar signs. His wife Jane did not see dollar signs in this land and recalled in her autobiography, quote, mosquitoes blackened our clothing, jungle flies as large as horse flies waited for our blood. Other creatures that made me shudder were lying in wait in the slimy paths or on the branches of overhanging trees. The jungle itself was as hot and steamy as a conservatory. What on earth could Carl possibly see in this place? To which her beloved husband responded, quote, Look, honey, I'm going to build a city here. A city like magic, like romantic places you read and dream about but never see. And she responded, I fucking hate my husband. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat, gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week and you can pause anytime so just head to factormeals.com slash american hysteria 50 and use code american hysteria 50 to get 50 percent off your first box plus 20 percent off your next box that's code american hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash american hysteria 50 to get 50 percent off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker. 
you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. And now, back to the show. Carl was not the first eccentric businessman to set his sights on the Florida coast. Before him, there was developer John Collins, who first envisioned the land not as a resort destination paradise, but rather a farm of alligator pears, or avocados. At the ripe young age of 70, John got to work shaping his mosquito and crocodile-infested bog into an expansive, functional farm. How did he do it? Well, he used the cheap labor of local black workers who came from an area then known as Colored Town, a segregated community that was formed in the 1890s, made up of those working on the construction of Southern railroads. On John Collins' peninsula, these laborers had to use machetes to hack away at the trees, brush, and mangroves before filling the land in to make it suitable for farming. But some of the stumps were so heavy that the crew actually had to use elephants that John Collins was somehow able to procure. The whole thing was a mess. The bumbling man was way out of his league. When his kids arrived to see what their elderly father was up to using their future inheritance, they immediately took control of the project, envisioning not alligator pears, but the Atlantic City of the South. The biggest roadblock to this plan was the fact that there was no easy way for tourists or buyers to get to the land a bridge needed to be constructed from the peninsula to the mainland. But I guess building an enormous bridge with no experience is easier said than done, and it was quickly discovered that conventional wooden supports wouldn't cut it, as wood-eating bugs called shipworms began devouring the structure. A more costly route had to be taken, involving casing the wood in concrete and sheet iron. Funds were quickly depleted, and the bridge was left half-finished. It was this stumpy bridge that ended up catching the attention of the newly arrived Carl Fisher. After hearing secondhand about the Collins' project, Fisher had walked over and found John Collins actually sitting there, swinging his little legs over the edge, staring out at the expanse of the sea. Becoming acquainted with John and the rest of his family, Carl recognized that they were working toward the same goals, and he believed that in this peninsula, he had found the site for his dream city. 
Carl financed the completion of the bridge, then the largest wooden bridge designed for automobiles in the entire world. In exchange, Carl asked for a 200-acre parcel of land on the south side of the peninsula. The group agreed on a name, calling it Miami Beach, incorporating it as a city a few years later. Carl Fisher used his status as the father of the first American highway to write home and convince the governor of Indiana to build a new highway connecting Chicago all the way down to Miami. The governor liked the idea, and he offered to facilitate a meeting between the governors of Illinois, Kentucky, Ohio, Tennessee, and Georgia. And as usual, Carl's natural promotional skills won the day, and the governors all agreed to support his plan. Soon after, Carl would lead a 15-car caravan out of Indianapolis toward Miami to scout routes for what was now being called the Dixie Highway. In September of 1916, the route was officially opened. Now that the land was actually becoming accessible, Carl used his Presto Bike Light fortune, as well as the money of rich investors, to finance massive hotels, exotic resort destinations for the wealthy, and lots designed to serve as winter homes for the hyper-rich. But Miami was still a gross swamp at this point. But would that stop the still unencumbered adult Carl Fisher? Of course not. Costing an exorbitant amount, suction dredges were used to vacuum up the muddy, gucky floor of the bay and then move it to the beach where it would cover all the roots and stumps left behind from the cut-down vegetation and also raise the shoreline by five entire feet, making it so that foundations for docks could be built. Much of this work was completed by the black men who came from Colored Town, but there were jobs for the women and children as well, who were put to work by Carl planting lawns for his development, made out of individual sprigs of grass that were planted all day long. Now that the land was becoming usable, Carl needed to draw rich investors and buyers to Miami Beach. He immediately drew from the same bag of tricks he'd long been using to promote his various businesses. Returning to his original porn-under-the-apron shtick, he began promoting Miami Beach using photos of bikini-clad women. Quote, We'll get the prettiest girls and put them in the goddamnedest, tightest, and shortest bathing suits. And no stockings or swim shoes either. We'll have their pictures taken and send them all over the goddamn country. But his most famous publicity stunt, the one that truly put Miami Beach on the map, was likely inspired by John Collins' solution to hauling those heavy tree stumps. Somehow, Carl acquired a pair of baby elephants that he named Rosie and Carl Jr., also known as Baby Carl. I'm going to get a million dollars worth of advertising out of this elephant. He was quoted as saying, 
Now, baby Carl appeared in the odd resort advertisement, but it was Rosie who became an instant celebrity, both in Florida and across the country at large. Businessmen wanted to visit Rosie the Elephant, and they wanted to get a piece of Miami Beach, where the sun and the market were scorching. Rosie soon began making appearances at Florida children's birthday parties, giving partygoers long rides across the beach. When a bank in the city was celebrating its grand opening, Rosie the Elephant was brought to star in the proceedings. She entered the bank, walked up to the counter, and ceremoniously deposited the first check. She made regular appearances on golf courses, where her famously gentle demeanor allowed golfers to tee up and hit golf balls off her back. I hate these people. Swimmers at the pool also used Rosie's back as a diving board. She towed passengers in gondola rides across the water. She planted trees. She took photographs. She herself was perhaps the most photographed elephant of the early 20th century and a fantastical mascot for people who wanted to start their new idyllic lives in the larger-than-life paradise of Miami Beach. Before long, a fan club was established for Rosie the Elephant, which included admirers from all over the country, as well as the team here at American Hysteria. When snow and ice and earmuffs roll throughout the frozen north, it's postcard time for friends enjoying the summer-like climate of the south. Having fun in Florida, they write. But for the real headquarters of fun in Florida, the rails, the roads, and the skyways lead to Miami on the east coast. Second in size only to... It's at this point, in the middle of the Roaring Twenties, that the Florida real estate craze really took off, leading to the largest migration of Americans in the nation's history. As one new resident of the time put it, quote, all of America's gold rushes, all of her oil booms, and all her free land stampedes dwindled by comparison with the torrent of migration pouring into Florida. In 1925, somewhere around 2.5 million people came into the state, and within three years, that number became 6 million, with about 7,000 moving in each day. The majority of these new citizens were former factory workers or farmers who were seeking better opportunities in a land hailed as a year-round summer paradise with the promise of a kind of get-rich-quick energy that has always run in the blood of our great nation, as we detail in our episode called Get Rich Quick. Now, I'm no economist, and I really don't understand how this all works, but I'll try. To help kick off the craze, Carl Fisher raised the price of his own land by 10% to give the impression that it was rising on its own. And then he promised his customers that each year they would see another 10% increase. 
As more and more people became more and more interested, Carl and others started selling their land not at a fixed price, but by auction, encouraging Americans, through a healthy dose of competition, to bid higher and higher, much more than they'd be willing to pay under less exciting circumstances. It was not unlike a scene from our Christmas time battles for Tickle Me Elmo or our drive through brawls for teeny beanie babies at McDonald's, both of which you can hear about on our episode called Toy Riots. There were small riots, in fact, occurring daily, where hopeful buyers started to just throw their checks at salesmen, so many that they reportedly had to sweep them all up and collect them in actual barrels. But just like Beanie Babies, the prices of the land did not represent what it was actually worth. For most of these buyers, they had never set foot in Florida. They had never seen the land, and so they had to fully trust in the unnerving chaos of this brand new market. But it wasn't really the land that mattered. It was more a game of buying and selling, a process aided by the adorably named Binder Boys, an army of mostly teenaged boys and girls who went in the place of those purchasing land out of state. A binder was a small down payment on a property, one that was non-refundable, a promissory note saying that the rest would be paid within 30 days. The first down payment was paid by the binder boys, who were never actually planning on going through with the full sale, but would instead sell the land at a higher binder, passing it along while taking a commission. Or something like that. I tried. Despite all the grueling hours spent clearing the land, none of the laborers from Colored Town were allowed to purchase land on the peninsula, even if they could afford it. The property developers in the Jim Crow South simply would not allow non-whites to live in any part of Miami Beach, Carl Fisher very much included. His luxurious Flamingo Hotel would also be restricted to an elite few. For years after Fisher opened the building, it enforced a strict policy forbidding Jewish guests. His housing developments were all strictly segregated as well through what was known as the Caucasian Clause, which read, quote, Said property shall not be sold, leased, or rented in any form or manner, by any title, either legal or equitable, to any person or persons other than of the Caucasian race, or to any firm or corporation of which any persons other than the Caucasian race shall be a part or stockholder. After this two-year-long, all-out Caucasian land brawl, predictably, the market began to tank. The bubble, not unlike Beanie Babies, not unlike cryptocurrency, burst spectacularly and showed the actual valuelessness of the land, much of which had been purchased sight unseen, including some of the plots sold by the flim-flammiest of salesmen that were actually underwater. 
Forbes magazine printed an alarming article predicting the full collapse of the Florida real estate market. And then in 1926, a massive hurricane destroyed a bunch of Miami's premier resorts. A final nail in the coffin for this epic boom ending, quote, whatever public enthusiasm for Florida vacation properties and real estate development that remained. Thousands and thousands of non-rich investors lost their life savings. Patron Saint Rosie the Elephant continued to be a staple of Miami Beach, even past its heyday, becoming a popular tourist attraction and giving rides to children into the early 1930s. Some say she had a stint in the circus after that. But either way, she made her last known public appearance in 1938. According to some sources, she died shortly after, but others insist she outlived Carl Fisher himself, dying in the early 1940s. To this day, Rosie the Elephant may get more credit for Miami Beach than both Carl Fisher and John Collins, recently immortalized at Canopy Park, which now features a Rosie the Elephant's playground, where children can enjoy climbing a structure in her shape. Much of America has been masterminded by confident flimflam men and their cannonball of confidence. Failure never considered, never recognized. Unthinkable success always just over the horizon, boys. Although at the height of his success, he was worth the equivalent of $1.1 billion today, by the end of his life, Carl had lost everything. Not long before he died, a former work colleague saw what looked like that old dog Carl Fisher loitering in a Miami Beach park, sitting on a wooden bench, staring out at the expanse of sea. After the man got out of his car and asked Carl what the hell he was doing, he told him, quote, I can tell you in a few words, I'm a beggar. Dead broke. The bottom dropped out of the sea and I went with it. You, you know, I promoted Miami Beach here. I used to make dreams come true. Can't do it anymore. I'm only a beggar now. The end can't be far away. So much of the garish America we know came from the confident visions of confidence men. But more so, it came from the labor of those who create these ridiculous, half-baked dreams. The workers, so many of whom have long been barred from enjoying the fruits of their own labor. Our confidence men are nothing without their confidence, without their cash. Because when it fails, they're left stunned by a reality in which, what? They could fail? A reality that they'd never before contemplated, never before confronted, because rarely, it appears, does America say no to rich people's imaginations, no matter who gets harmed in the process. 
But do you think that Rosie the Elephant's little brother, Baby Carl, took all this shit sitting down? Nope. In one shining moment, he took his owner to task for all the sins of his past, like a frosty ghost rattling his chains. Baby Carl stood up for his sister, stood up for the workers, stood up for his owners, then future ex-wife Jane, and stood up for all the real Americans whose life savings were conned away by Carl Sr. and the other flim-flammers of the Florida land boom. Once, when trying to impress his rich buddies, he took the elephant out of his pen to show him off. As Carl later told the story, quote, Oh, he knocked me down and ran off, and when I grabbed hold of him by the tail to stop him, he hit me, a jolt with his trunk, and almost broke my ribs. Then I grabbed him by the trunk, and he locked his trunk around my arm, and if you think a three-year-old elephant has no particular strength in his trunk, you should let him wrap it around your arm or leg, give you a yank. Anyway... I am all black and blue. This was American Hysteria. If you want more of our show, or if you'd like to get ad-free episodes, head to patreon.com slash American Hysteria to get access to Hysteria Home Companion, a talk show where producer Miranda and I discuss all the hottest gossip from the topic's cutting room lore. And sometimes, if we're feeling young, we live stream. That's patreon.com slash American Hysteria. You can follow us on social media at American Hysteria Podcast on Instagram and at Amer Hysteria on Twitter. If you're feeling nice, leave us a nice review on the app of your choice. It really helps us out. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Sound designed by Clear Camo Studios, co-researched and co-written by Riley Smith, and co-edited and co-produced by Miranda Zickler. With voice acting from Will Rogers. Thanks, as always, for listening. And may the spirit of baby Carl continue to empower us all. Have a great week.